My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And you are awaited. You are awaited, as everyone here now knows, is a Mad Max Fury Road podcast where Yuri and I get to talk to the coolest people on the planet. Um, I'm foregoing all other intro topics in favor of saving time for our special guest today. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Brennan McCarthy, uh, you know him, you may have known him for a long time. He has a long and storied career. Um, as uh, working uh, film, TV, and comic books. So that's, comic books was the first place that I was introduced to Brendan McCarthy. And in going over his, uh, his resume before we hopped on today, I, I know it's uh, not like us to do research, but I, I figured uh, it was the respectable thing to do. And I found all sorts of things, A, that I didn't know that Brendan had worked on that I, had, uh, that I already loved, and uh, a bunch more things that I've already since ordered since doing the research on him. Um, you... Uh, know him, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, quite well as uh, one of the people who was instrumental in bringing us Mad Max Fury Road, ladies and gentlemen, Brendan McCarthy. Brendan, how are you? I'm great. It's uh, it's evening time here in Ireland. Excellent. Excellent. Wait, are you in Ireland? You're in Ireland right now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, ha, ha. Awesome. Uh, Brendan, I spent the morning reading up on your resume again, and uh, is that creepy to say? It's creepy to tell you that, right? Is that weird? Not at all, no. Sweet. Um, I got introduced to you, I'm not as big of a comic book fan as Yuri, but um, I got introduced to you through your Twitter feed uh, um, recently again. Um, I've known about you through Mad Max Fury Road for quite some time, obviously, but your Twitter feed is one of the best ones on the internet, and we've we've been plugging your Twitter feed on this podcast for about eight weeks Yeah, we retweet you a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, great. Um, well, I, I'm a recent arrival on Twitter. I came onto Twitter about six months ago to promote a graphic novel uh, that I'd uh, written and drawn called Dream Gang, which was published by Dark Horse Comics. And um, at the same time, I've been, um, I have, uh, I'd recently moved and I have piles of boxes full of uh, bits of paper with drawings on them, largely photocopies and stuff. So, I've basically been digitizing everything, scanning them into my computer and uh, dumping them. So as I've been scanning them, I came across swathes of Mad Max drawings and stuff that, that hadn't been published or seen anywhere else. And I uh, I just thought it's ridiculous nobody's seen this stuff. And um, uh, I figured people would be interested. Oh, so it's, oh. yeah, so they I've are. been posting mainly stuff that isn't in the art of Mad Max book. Right, uh, right. So that uh, you know, people got more of an insight into how the um, the movie was uh, conceived, created, written, designed uh, in the first two years, which is when I was involved in it. Well, we definitely have a lot of questions about that, um, and I just want to say, as means of introduction, uh, that. We have become entranced. We've talked to Mark Mangini and Mark Sexton and a couple other people who've worked on the film, and all of them seem to share this uh, this sensibility of just being overwhelmed constantly by ideas. And it's a testament to your work that I wasn't just interested in the Mad Max stuff. I've been I've looked at every tweet that you've done and all the art that you've put forth, and this this sense of you just consistently create work. Um, it's very heartening to see, and it makes a lot of sense on why you'd end up with this sort of merry band of pranksters from from uh, Mad Max. I, I really love that about what you do, and, and I, I encourage you to just keep putting this stuff out, the stuff that didn't get used, the stuff that hasn't seen the light of day before. It's fascinating, man. It's really cool. I think what's interesting for um, 
you know, if people do see, uh, I, I mean, there, there's a possibility of a, um, you know, a new art of Brendan McCarthy book. Um, a publisher's been, been talking to me about it, where I, I hopefully will be able to publish this stuff. Um, and um, I think it's interesting for people to see how ideas evolve and how you can start in one direction, kind of go to a dead end with an idea and realise you can't use it, but an element of the idea may then get taken out, combined with something else, and then later you get something that's actually in the movie. So that, that this, just so people get a sense of how fluid the creative process is right at the beginning. Obviously, when you lock it down and you've got your story, you've got your characters and you know what's happening, you can't do so much. But the I think what I bring to the table is um, creativity, and that's what I liked about um, the Mad Max films, particularly number two mm-hmm. and number three. Uh, although it was less of a, as a, a success as a movie, um, it was a very invented film. Mm-hmm. I like original thought. I like creativity, stuff I haven't seen before, stuff that makes me think, stuff that gives me that kind of mind buzz from, wow, that's a great, you know. So um, that's kind of what I bring to the table and what George Miller really liked. Uh, he, he once said to me when we were working on it, he says, Brendan, you know, most writers I work with, I have to drag them through a script. With you, I'm running to catch up. (laughs) (laughs) It feels that way. I mean, let's just dive right into some ideas because originally what you pitched were these, this, the the death cult, uh, which became the war boys, these necro boys. Um, I, I gotta just tell you, man, the idea of having faces riddled with cancer lumps that they, that they've embraced and tattooed and pierced is one of the coolest ideas I've seen. Can you just talk about that original pitch and how it transferred to War Boys and were you part of that transfer to the eventual, um, as we saw on screen, version of it? Um, I worked, um, um, originally, uh, when I was about 19, in 1981, I saw uh, Mad Max 2, Road Warrior. It kind of blew me away in a way that the film hadn't done before. You often hear about, you know, musicians or something saying, you know, when I first saw the Sex Pistols or heard <laughs> Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis, it totally changed my life. And in a way, Mad Max 2 was the first film that, you know, knocked me out, knocked me sideways. And I kind of saw it 30 times in the first month when it came out. In those <laughs> days, you had to basically go to the cinema to see the movie again because there mm. weren't VHSs didn't come out for it till a year later. So in order to study the film, I just kept going to see it at the cinema. And um, I, for some reason, I just wanted to somehow crack how George Miller had um, uh, just, you know, what had he done in this film that affected me so much? And um, so I got to know the film, and I used to write to him and never get an answer, of course. You know, <laughs> but I, was, I wasn't like a kind of, you know, a sort of stalker or anything. It was, it was you know, these are intelligent queries I was sending to him. And now and then I'd send him my art. Um, Mad Max also inspired a comic strip called Freakwave, which was Mad Max Go Surfing. I'd recently gone to Australia uh, on a sort of holiday and decided to stay for a year. And um, Mad Max, obviously I saw Mad Max too. And then because there was so much surfing going on around Australia, I wanted to combine the two together. And um, with the writer Peter Milligan, who's quite a big name in comics now, mm-hmm. um, uh, we cooked up a film pitch called Freakwave, and uh, I got on a plane to Hollywood, and uh, you know I didn't know anything about Hollywood at all. I just sort of rolled up there with this script, and uh, I couldn't sell it, but I did manage to sell it as a comic book. And um, so, Mad Max was a perennial influence in my work. 
after about 15 years of writing to George Miller, not every day, but once every five years, or if something, uh, if something came up that I thought he might like, I sent it to him. I got a call from his uh, production partner, Doug Mitchell, saying, we're going to be in Hollywood um, you know, in two weeks' time. We'd love to meet you about a project. And I went, wow. So at the time, so I pretended I was living in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I, flew, I flew to Hollywood. That's amazing. And uh, just sort of casually ambled into the meeting as if I was the same. <laughs> and uh, eventually George and Doug twigged that I'd actually didn't live in Hollywood at all, that I'd flown, you know, X thousand miles for this meeting. Mm-hmm. So they were a bit like wow, you didn't need to do that. But I said, yes, I did. Um, hmm. And uh, that we got, we just really clicked at that meeting. And um, at the time, George was uh, thinking about doing a Mad Max TV series. This was at the time of Xena and Hercules, mm-hmm. pre-cable. It's pre-Netflix, HBO type of cable stuff that was around at the time. And Warners were interested in maybe doing a Mad Max TV series, not with Mel Gibson, but, you know, so George was exploring the idea and had got in touch about possibly designing me designing stuff for it and uh i mean very recklessly i said look you know fuck the tv series what about mad max 4 i mean what's <laughs> mad max? where is he you know? uh-huh. and uh so i started you know listen i knew every inch of every film he'd done really i knew his career very well i always thought he was uh, an absolutely top-notch director that was i thought overlooked and um one of the great things about Fury Road is it, it came out so well that George's stock is now, you know, you can't not consider George Miller in the same breath as Cameron and Ridley Scott, Spielberg, those guys, because he always was to me. But I feel Fury Road came out so well and it worked, it impacted into the culture so well that uh, George's position now, I think, is, you know, uh, you know, he's really there. I think as a, uh, he, he always was to me, but now I think everybody recognises him as a very singular director. It's a shame he's had to get to past seventy for that to happen. Yeah, right. I mean, we're going to have to agree with you that that we're we're all glad this this happened too, because that's that that was the genesis for this uh, this podcast. Was we saw the film and it, it 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 went so deep, and there was we felt that there was so much to talk about, um, and we just needed to start talking about it. And so a year later. Uh, we're here still talking about the film. Um, how was the uh, you you because you came, when you, when you said uh, hey you know well what about Mad Max Four you you sort of came in with an original pitch to him. What was your what, what was your can you describe your original pitch and, and how it sort of changed over time? Um, well, my my original pitch had core ideas that eventually ended up in Fury Road, but it had a lot of other stuff as well that was completely insane and uh, two sci-fi so halfway what basically, basically think about you know the, the, the industry the film business is you can't just pitch people stuff because you you put them in a very precarious legal position mm-hmm. so George said look I can't listen to anything like a pitch or anything and I said well look if there's anything here I come up with have it I just want to spend 12 bucks buy a ticket and sit down and watch a new Mad Max film and I want to watch a good one you know? yeah so that was your uh, pitch <laughs> Um, so he said okay and uh, so I, I gave them the pitch it was you know, um, pretty I mean it wasn't that wacky looking back on it it's not that wacky because elements of it you know got rolled into the screen, uh, the actual story so at that time um, I suppose I, 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 
I hadn't done. I hadn't actually written a big Hollywood feature film. I'd worked on lots of them as a storyboard guy. I just worked my way up. Started storyboarding, then into concept art, production design, writing stuff all the time. You know, in comics, you write and you draw. Mm-hmm. And um, what George liked was my ability to write and, and then draw the thing we were talking about. So as we formulated and blocked out the story. I'd say, well, his car should look like this, or they should look like that, or this. Car- what about a character with this? You know, and sometimes I'd just w- come in in the morning with an idea, put it on the board. George would walk in and say, "What's that?" And I say, "Well, shouldn't there be somebody like this?" <laughs> and say, "Yeah, but he should be called Bang." Like for example, an example was um, the People Eater, the big fat guy mm-hmm. in the business suit. I mean, he was meant to be the the cliche. Uh, originally, we'd had the idea of that there were these four brothers who were like the four riders of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of them should be, you know, an armaments kind of guy, so hence the bullet farmer. Another one should be the corporate bloated businessman, hence the people eater. Mm-hmm. The There was the ravenous sexual predator who I think that got morphed over into becoming... Um, the son, what's Rictus. his name? Rictus Erectus, or Rictus, yeah, Rictus Erectus. Mm. Yeah, he and then he he became that sort of element. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, originally, in in the original pitch, Immortan Joe, who uh, was just called the Immortan. That's George's name, right? Um, and later on, you know, years later, I I read you know a pitch for Mad Max when they were talking about the films going into production. And I saw the word Immortan Joe, and I thought, oh, what a stroke of genius, because the Immortan sounded too much like, you know, a supervillain. Right. Whereas when you get Immortan Joe, you the Joe on the end knocks it down into being a regular guy who became the Immortan, you know. So right. there, was a, there, was, there was a great um, interplay between us. Uh, and also, yeah. for example, the very first time I met George, when he phoned me up and said, listen, why don't you come to Australia? I've got some ideas for a Mad Max film now. And uh, I'd like to knock them about with you. And I said, fantastic. So, and believe it or not, this is probably one of the best weeks of my life. And I believe it. <laughs> yeah, but, but guess what happened the same week? I got a phone call from Pixar saying, do you want to join Pixar? What? <laughs> wow. Can you believe it? In no. the same damn week. That's crazy. When it rains, it pours. Yeah. Yeah. A guy called Joe Ramp, who sadly died uh, about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Had seen my work, phoned me up. He got his, my number from a, f- a mutual friend of ours, and uh, phoned me up and said, "Brandon, I love your work. Why don't you come up to Pixar?" <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a really good, well done, yeah, sir. Good that's accent. a good, good American accent. <laughs> and well, that's this. He had a kind of sing-song kind of voice, and uh, mm. I said, "Joe, look, you're not going to believe this, but I've just been asked to work, start on a brand new movie that I is if ever I was born to do another movie, a movie. It's it's. I didn't say it was Mad. I couldn't at the time say Mad sure. Max, but." Uh, so if you can believe it or not, I had to turn down a gig at Pixar, you know, in there working in the story department as, as a concept storyboard guy. Mm. And um, so in the end, after to, obviously I, I had to do the Mad Max. And, and um, yeah. so when I first went over there to Sydney, I was kind of jet lagged and wandered into George's studio place and uh, in Sydney. And uh, he said, let's go out and have a coffee to kind of like wake me up a bit or something. And uh, so he sat down and said, right, well, I've got two ideas for the title. I said, oh, what is it? He goes, well... I've got Fury Road or Furiosa. Mad Max Fury Road, Mad Max Furiosa. I said, it's got to be Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I was adamant. And we had that word Furiosa just floating around for about uh, two years when we worked on it. And we could never, we, we didn't know how to use it. It was a great word. It, you know, it comes from 
as you know, it comes from a musical term meaning with gusto or verve. Mm -hmm. You know, you put furiosa next to a piece of music, it means it's to be played in a very furious fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so initially the word furiosa became the land around the citadel, was the furiosa. The badlands were called the furiosa. And, you know, so this woman, the Praetorian, this guard, was going to go out through the Furiosa with the, these girls. But we never twigged that her name was Furiosa. So it was only a few years later when I left it, again, that I, I bumped into George in L.A. once, and uh, he said, anyway, when Furiosa, I said, wait, what do you mean Furiosa? He says, oh, yeah, that's her name. And I went, oh. Staring <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. us in the face yep. all that time, yep. and we never joined them up together, you know? It's, it's, it's interesting how all these things come about. There are some benefits, I guess, to having 15 years to uh, to let a, a project sort of gestate and, and settle. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to the point where, um, and, you know, George did too occasionally, was where you think, you know what, this may not happen. Yeah. And uh, it went up and down seriously three times, you know, and, but, and then we lost Mel Gibson and, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. But uh, it was... Um, um, Sorry, ask me another question. I've lost my thread. Yeah, I have one. Is there, are there, just bouncing off that, are there any other ideas that really surprised you as particular strokes of genius that you had been distant from the project for a second and then ran back into it or saw an ad or something for it that surprised you? Well, um, yeah, there were. I mean, when I saw the... I, I was like, uh, George invited me to the premiere in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, so the first time I actually saw the movie was at the premiere. Wow. And I had... Wow. Uh, I was sitting in the row, and directly behind me were Mel Gibson and George Miller. <laughs> and it was like, sometimes you get those moments in your life where you think somehow a weird circle has been completed from that 19-year-old kid who was blown sideways by Road Warrior with Mel Gibson uh, and George Miller directing, and then there the two of them were nudging each other in the ribs and Mel going, yeah! Oh, <laughs> great. It, it, it must have felt so surreal. <laughs> Yeah, it was a fantastic, you know, it's a great, you don't know when you're a young guy that a, a sort of, um, you know, some, sometimes something can seize you or become a kind of an obsession for a while. Uh, yeah, it, it has in a strange way a portent for a future that you don't know exists at the time. Yeah. I mean, never did I think that I would end up authoring, you know, a great new Mad Max film. And I, I tell you what, me and George, I mean, we were very, when you know, I had to get it straight with George when I first started working with him, and we had a conversation along the lines of, look, I'm nobody, you're George Miller, I'm pretty much quaking every time I think I'm working with you, and I've got to get over that, I know. But let's make an agreement that if this comes out and it's looking like a stinking turkey that we flush it, let's not do the movie if it's rubbish. You know? mm -hmm. And so that was our, we shook hands on that, and, that we, and so we were very, very rigorous with each other. And... Um, you know, so there was no, yes, George, that's a great idea, because he's George Miller. I mean, I was the, I was the opposite of the yes-man into him, in a way, you know. Um, you know, because I want, I was, there's no way I was going to author a Mad Max film. People say, well, yikes, pity, pity they revisited Mad Max, isn't it? Yeah. But, uh, you know, so, but we knew within, you know, soon, you know, very quickly that there was a, uh, you know, sometimes a movie starts to, cook and you get it in a project as an artist when I do comics or anything you know when you've got something and we felt there was something in um, 
what the material we were generating that was really exciting as uh, as i once said to uh, peter pound i think it was the uh, one of the storyboard guys and concept artists is that i said peter like every morning i wake up and i run to work because i've got to find out what happens next oh yes. so good uh, brendan everyone we've spoken to so far mark mangini matt bow mark sexton all these guys when we ask them this question, they all have sort of one story that sticks out. I'm wondering if you have the same answer, where we ask them, are there any particular disagreeances that you had with George that kind of stick in your mind as something, whether you won or lost that argument, as like something that sort of mattered to you that you fought for? Are there anything that sticks out, uh, any moments in your mind that stick out of in, uh, large disagreements that you and George had that you worked, worked through a specific plot point or a character or a detail of the film? Um, yeah, and I, I think... Um um, look, in the in the end, George was the boss. It's his vision, and and my job was to make sure that, first of all, when I saw George, I felt that I sensed that he, I felt in my initial job was to move him into the headspace of the guy who made Road Warrior, mm-hmm. and that's a younger man who's kind of cocky and arrogant. Not arrogant, but there's a cockiness to that's it. interesting. Yeah, I like that. So, idea. it's so confident. This is a, you've got to remember, Road Warrior was a movie that could go from a very, very brutal rape scene shot through telephoto lens to make it look grainy and like reportage. It made it look very real, and you, you almost want to turn away. It's so horrible. Mm-hmm. But then, then you've got a guy catching a silver boomerang and his fingertips spring off like a Chuck Jones gag. Yeah, right. So you've got this incredibly the film that, in tone, it wobbles everywhere, you know, and you just think, wow, the verve of that you know that kind of you know so i was said to george like george you've got to get your electric guitar out plug it in and hit the loudest fucking chords you can because <laughs> that's that's the guy who's gonna who made road warrior and that's the guy who's gonna make fury road not the guy who's made babe and these very <laughs> gentle films that are very beautiful and uh you know so there was a sense of moving you know we used to do things like i'd get footage of you know, from, say, the Phil from the Fury, the Sex Pistols movie, just mm. the Sex Pistols doing anarchy in the UK, that would be cranked up really loud in the morning before we did some Necroboy scenes. You That's know? So, so good. I picture, by the way, Brendan, when you say, like, like strike your guitar and I'll out his chord, turn it up, I picture George sort of sagely nodding and drinking tea in an ascot when you <laughs> tell him that. And him going, yes, good idea. That sounds like a very good idea, Brendan. Actually, no, um, the energy of the room was... Um, it wasn't like sitting. I've always sort of. On a, I find writing a bit boring because I'm sitting at a typewriter writing, and uh, George, you know, was smart enough to know that the best way to do it would be to do it. He said, "Well, how do you do comics?" And I said, "Well, we we had George had in his. Um, he'd use these things called electro boards, which are giant whiteboards which you can draw on, and then you can print out what you've drawn, small size, and photocopy them and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. so." Um, it was a standing up movie, you know, how he wrote it. It was a, more like a group in a, imagine a band in a, in a recording studio, up and down, jumping here and there, moving around, standing on tables, shouting each other, acting stuff out, having a laugh. It was, that energy was what was going on rather than ticked typing stuff. Well, know? that makes, that makes a lot of sense because that's how I watched the film. Definitely the first time I was pretty much on my feet and very vocal in a, in a, in, you know, at, at the Grauman's Chinese theater when we, when we first saw it or at the Arclight. Um, and, and it continues to be 
a film. I, I went to try to see the film um, in the theater, in one of those posh theaters where they, they give you the, the, the lazy boy and they, they, they come in and they serve you, you know, dinner and, and all that. One. And it was the worst experience I've had watching this film so far because I didn't want to relax during this. Ex I wanted, you know, I only use the edge of the seat, as they say. Um, and so having this, you know, having the lazy boy was a uh, was a waste and 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 ruined the film for me. So I it, it, that that energy definitely yeah. comes through. Yeah, I mean, I can remember saying, right, George, the first thing you got to do when this film opens, I want you to walk up to me and punch me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. You know, so yeah. when that and so we initially were we we so one of the first things we started thinking about were moves on the buzzard. You know that whole opening chase from when she turns off the road and the, oh, yeah. there's, that, oh, yeah. there's that beautiful shot, if you can remember it, where George placed the camera on the back of the, up on the top of the truck and the, and you're driving with the truck and then the truck takes a turn and the, the rig up the front curves and we come around with it and, and it kind of brings you right into it. George's thing was always to place the camera where you, where you would be mm -hmm. and to make sure that you, the film is seen from your point of view as much as he can to make it immersive and listen man I, I was very fortunate I, I had one year with George on my, just to myself and I asked him pretty much every question you can ask him up to the point where I probably drove him insane <laughs> you know that shot in, you know that shot when you did that in Road Warrior you know when the actress did that and that <laughs> I can't remember this stuff, you know? uh -huh. so um, yeah I mean it was, uh, what I'm saying is uh, I, I said to George I said my aim with doing Fury Road is to give to the people that see Fury Road what I got from Road Warrior. Yeah. I want people to walk out of this movie with their legs trembling, going, "What the hell have I just seen?" Uh, you know, and that spirit of uh, of of you know really wanting to go for it and not not pull, not holding back. I mean, I egged him on a lot. You know, there was stuff in it that. He go, oh, I don't know about. It. I said, go, oh, come on, for God's sake, let's do it, do it. You know, really pushing him, <laughs> great. you know, further and further. Because, and also, once you get into a kind of an atmosphere, and uh, Peter Pound, who I hope you'll speak to. Yes, I, I thank, thank you. I've, I've reached out to Peter, and um, I'm waiting to hear back. So, thank you again for that connection. Peter was there right at the beginning. He may have actually done the very, very first drawings for Fury Road. Uh, in fact, I think he did. And then Mark Sexton came in after we'd finished the script year one. George said, "Right, time to storyboard," and we're really going to then storyboard with precision. And he brought Mark in, so we had then had a storyboard team of Peter, Mark, uh, who were drawing the boards up, and then me and George would work the shots out. I'd scribble the I'd scribble them up quick, and then we'd hand, at the end of the day we'd hand my rough drawings over to Pete and Mark. And Pete and Mark would then draw them up into these beautiful drawings. You know, now and then if I had the time, I'd do a few myself because I was mm -hmm. missing doing some finished art, you know. But uh, largely, the first two-thirds of the movie was me and George. And then I moved on to do another movie with George and start prepping that. And Mark and Peter and George then finished the third act, which is the final chase-off. Mm -hmm. So although I wrote the whole movie with George and there is a kind of a script which was done before we then did, went into the storyboards um, you know the storyboards were what defined the movie precisely uh, the, the script that was written before the storyboards you know we had all the dialogue you know more dialogue than we needed more action than we needed more stuff than we needed mm -hmm. and the storyboards extrapolated out of that you know the core it's like boiling it down to a 
souls. Do, do you think that they'll ever release a, a storyboard, like giant book version of the script? Because I would buy the shit out of that in a heartbeat. I've heard something that... Um, um, did you see the art of Mad Max? Yeah, it's, it's amazing, yeah. Yeah, well, I think there is talk of doing a... Um, the Mad Max script, and they may they may publish up my electroboard drawings and just show people how it went from a core idea about a guy breeding girls, a woman that guards them, she makes a break with the girls. Max gets Max reluctantly gets caught up in their story, wants to ditch them all the time until he can't ditch them until he, in the end, commits to their um, cause and. They, I mean, I posted up on Twitter the alter, the ending we were going to do, which wasn't the ending that ended up in the movie. Um, so you know, so, so there were that was that was, actually I will say the ending was the fun, the, the biggest thing that was different uh, in the biggest change. I mean, I, I knew George walked in one day and said, "No, they're not going to do that. They're going to go back." And I went, "Oh, that's interesting." He's recapitulating that movement in Road Warrior where Mel Gibson turns the truck around, yeah, mm-hmm. faces. Yeah. And he's taken that, but he's made it now the major turning point at what they call the, big, the end of Act 2, beginning of Act 3. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, go on. When, when he came in with that idea, uh, it sounds like, I mean, a lot of the stories you tell about George sounds like he's like, hey, here, here's, here's what it is. I sorted it out. And do you instantly sort of clock that that's the right move when you, when you hear it? Like, if he comes in confident about something... Do you always feel like that's the right thing? And also for our listeners, would you would you kind of summarize the old ending for them? I'm sorry. Would you summarize mind summarize the, old, yeah, the would, old ending? Would you mind? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Um, yes, there, there existed an alternative ending, um, uh, but it was it was fairly it wasn't clearly mapped out because George says I don't want to commit to an ending. I want I want the characters and the story to tell us the ending. So. We roughly knew where we were going. Um, and what it was, was the uh, Fury Road was a sort of track that ran through the Furiosa, this Badlands. And it's as the movie, right up to the end of Act Two, and they're sitting out in the starry sky, and off they go. And Max says, wait a minute. The only green place I've ever seen around here was back there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't, that, that was what George brought into it. But before that, they kept down the Fury Road, which ended in a sheer cliff drop. The road just went off the edge of a cliff. There was nothing there. Hmm. Uh, but when Furiosa drives towards it, in this version, she hadn't come to the green place. And she knew where the green place was. And she's by this stage, only the rig is left. They, they've long ago abandoned the trailer, which has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, so they're all piled in, inside this rig. They're driving towards the this cliff edge. And Max is going, you know, they're like Thelma and Louise, yeah. just heading straight to this complete drop. And it's a giant kind of curved escarpment. And um, uh, he, uh, the, so Furiosa's driving, and right as they look like they're basically going to drive over the edge, she pulls the brake and swerves the vehicle. So it skids almost to a halt right on the edge of this cliff edge. And then, then you see that there's a slip road going down the cliff. And she takes the truck down this cliff under a cloud cover. And underneath this cover is a green place, which is, it's a microclimate where these women live. And the women had these flying contraptions. They were like harpies, like, you know, mm-hmm. the Greek mythological vengeful women. Mm-hmm. And um, hot on their tails is the what's left of the armada. 
And Immortan Joe and all these guys are hurtling towards this cliff, and they're going so fast, most of them can't stop, and they go over the cliff because they don't know about the slip road. And as much of the armada goes over the edge, Immortan Joe and a few of the others, you know, manage to stop in time. And then out of the cloud cover come these flying, like, they're not gyro captains, something like the gyro captain thing, mm-hmm. except they're these, uh, this tribe of women uh, come out, and they just start this huge battle, basically the battle between men and women. It's a literal battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than as in the uh, film, it's more of a uh, it's a, you know philosophically you know there's a patriarchal matriarchal kind of uh, idea, but this became a physical battle between men and women, and in the end, uh, you know they win, Immortan Joe loses, and some kind of the, the remnants are allowed to live with them. And uh, but I can't be too much more specific because George said, "Oh no, don't let, I don't want to go there." Because mm-hmm. I don't want to know how it happens. Let's just have that. So we had that roughly. We kind of roughly know what it's, where it's going to go. And uh, so then one day, George came in and says, "No." When they get to that bit where they're looking at the satellites and all the rest of it, um, Max then says, "Also, in that that scene was very different as well when I wrote it with him, because it was Max who, when they decide to go on." Uh, out to the Plains of Silence, Max says, you know, um, you know, we've been through all this place, there's no, you know, they realise now that the green place has been uh, turned into a swamp, there's nothing there, and he says, look, the only green place I've seen around here is the one back there, I say we go back. And the idea was, the camera then zoomed, one of the girls says, go back, are you mad? And then the camera would go right in on his face. Mm. It was basically the Mad Max where he slightly smiles. That yeah. crazy Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. I'm a crazy nutcase smile. You know. So that was the, and that was the, and then you would have cut to the truck moving down the sand dune and being spotted by the, uh, the rest of the Armada. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, you know, then it changed. And uh, poli- I, I think p- politically, because you've set the film up now as being such a strong feminist statement, you can't have because if you if you bear in mind that in the film, Furiosa goes on this mission with these girls, she has a fist fight with Max and loses. She then takes these girls to the green place, and you realise the green place is finished. There's nothing there, and you know that's when she kneels down and screams, and you realise that she's taking these girls out there, and there's nothing there. They meet this tribe of women. The women are all old with no teeth and. And you, they realise that that's the girls, the young girls realise that that's their, we're going to be their life and their fate. There won't be any children. There won't be, um, you know, they're going to be old, withered women, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, they decide to go off into the plains of silence. And that's when Max stops them. But obviously, I wasn't privy to this, but I'm extrapolating that George sort of thought, well, you can't have a man now come in and say, all right, you fucked everything up this is what we're going to do, and take over. So politically, you couldn't do that. So mm-hmm. hence, he lets them go, and then he has this flashback, and then he drives out after them, and it's more of a, a negotiation with them, mm-hmm. uh, if you in the finished film. You know. mm-hmm. um, I felt, personally, I felt it, it lacked a bit of drama, that scene, and it wasn't quite properly constructed. This is just me, because I'm, I'm probably the only person who can see this and say this, right. because, as right. a co-writer. But... Um, you know, I felt there was... I wasn't quite satisfied with that myself, but only because I knew what else it could have been. But I understood the reason they did it. 
How, how much conversation early on was there about that feminine dynamic and that feminist sort of slant? I know that the press has sort of gone back and forth and had a large public conversation about this. In the early days, how much conversation was there between you and George about the feminist angle and, and what the intent was behind that? Yeah, it was, it was inherent in the material. It was always the theme. Uh, I, I would say personally that I felt that the whole you know, feminist matriarchy stuff was overstated, but hitting the young social justice warrior crowd, that audience, mm -hmm. they, they amplified that. Mm -hmm. And sadly, the comments on, you know, in the film about things like, um, you know, Immortan Jones' war cult, and, the, and in a way, the, the journey of Nux from indoctrinated war boy to somebody who comes to... <clears throat> Uh, see through his indoctrination into this newer vision that the girls are giving him of what the world could be like. Um, that was overlooked, I felt, and it was all about, isn't it amazing, what a feminist film, isn't it great? You know, she kicks the chastity belt and all that, you know. You know it's, it's all there, sure, but I felt that at the expense of many other themes in the film, that was amplified you know, beyond, you know, in a way that was kind of out of balance to me. I sort of agree with you. And we've talked about this on the podcast a little bit, it, that it seems to us that what you have is an inevitable construction of a film when followed from the core principles the film sets. And a lot of these things have to unfold naturally, um, given the, the beginning and the, the, the world building that you've done. This is just what happens. And some things aren't quite the statement, they're just the way the world is built. And, and there's, a, there's a lack of, I think, understanding in the popular culture about how stories are constructed sometimes that leads people to, to erroneous conclusions about what the intent of the creators were. And we've run into that a little bit with some of our Twitter followers and listeners and, and some guests also, I would say. Yeah, agreed. And we, but although we have uh, time and time again said that and come to the conclusion, you know, watching the film in, in sort of with in the detail that we have, that that Nux's story is the that's that's he's in in many ways the 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 main character because his because he has the the the, the strong arc and the strong story from beginning to end. Yeah, he, goes through, he goes through the most change. Yeah, yeah. There's there's also this sense, Brendan, um, uh, in, on the same topic that. Um, Mad Max seems to differ, and I think your work really look digging into your work. You do this a lot, also. Where there's a difference between, um, I use I use the Blair Witch Project as an example of this, but they just started from core principles of what if these people only had their camera and got lost in the woods? What would the film look like? And they shoot it that way, and it feels real because they follow all the rules they've set for themselves. A lot of superhero movies and whatnot say, hey, here's a cool gadget. How do we make this work in the world? And it never sits quite right because the idea doesn't come from the world. It comes from the... The, the gadget or the thing or whatever or the the visual image it looks a lot it looks a lot like your work starts from real world problems and then extrapolates from there and it also seems to me that that a lot of the creative team um, does that uh, so how, how much of the conversations were about functionality versus here's a cool thing we could put in that's a dance between um, uh, you know that principle of of utility and gravity versus that looks really cool. For example, most of the tribes and stuff, how it kind of divided up is there was the core story that me and George both had a hand in. Then there was Furiosa was wholly George's character, 
and he really, you know, in a way, he fell in love with her, and I ended up having to defend Max in the film as the writer. You know, I <laughs> would end up saying, and my biggest fights with George, and you asked me, did I lose any? And my biggest fight with George was, look, Max is becoming a passenger in his own movie. We, you've got to amplify him. This is, uh, you know, you know. So that, and I felt, I'll be honest, you know, to be brutally honest. Um, you know, as the writer, I felt that Max, there was a slight imbalance still in the final film, that Max was not strong enough. Mm -hmm. um, I feel that um, a lot of that to do as well is um, if you have Mel Gibson playing Mad Max and he's against Charlize Theron, Mel's, the weight of Mel Gibson as an actor and also as the, it's his fourth Mad Max movie and he is Mad Max, is different to Tom Hardy coming in and trying to find the Mad Max and make him his own. And so Tom obviously had that issue to deal with. Um, so I, I do feel I would have liked to have amplified Max in that film a bit more. Um, mm. Because in a way, you know, it's her story and she's the driver of the action. Right. And um, Mel, uh, sorry, not, uh, Max is a kind of, is reactionary to a degree. And um, if you like, his amplification increases. And the point to me, when he finally joins the film, and absolutely turns it around, is right at the end when he does the blood transfusion with Furiosa. Mm -hmm. I felt that's when he, f for me, when he finally occupies the film as Mad Max. It, to me, that was a bit too much of a slow burn. Um, sure. You know, this is just my view. No, we, we agree with you, actually. We, we've, we've covered a little bit of this and talked to this a little bit also. And honestly, because we've become sort of a point person um podcast uh for this thing we get a lot of pushback from listeners and mad max fans and one of the criticisms we get uh, most often from critics of the film is precisely what you've levied there um the idea that it's called it's called mad max but he doesn't do anything he doesn't do anything and you know we've we've sort of stumbled across the same defenses that you've just levied but it's it is a constant sort of thing that we get and hear from fans mm -hmm. yeah so i mean you know i, I feel i'm uniquely placed to um, look at the calibration of the characters and, and the weight they have in the film. And, um, you know, that would, I, you know, I have, you know, look, because I was the original writer of it with George, I, I have sort of deeper criticisms and insights probably into anybody else, just because I remember, you know, coming up with stuff. I remember the conversations where I'd say, come on, George, look, you know, Max isn't doing it. You know, mm -hmm. and you know, then we'd kind of amp, amp him up a bit more and push him more at the action and stuff like that. Um, look, look, I mean, you know, you, I've talked to other people who say, no, no, it was, it was just right. You know, he he kind of comes into the film on an art, on a kind of as if you're gradually turning the volume up on him until finally he's really in the movie and part of it. And you know, that's a really interesting, different hero dynamic to, you know, you know, etc. I've listen. I've had plenty of conversations with other writers about it. So, mm -hmm. so look, I tend to be my own most severe critic, as you'd expect with most artists, writers. Mm. But you know, we have to be. You know, yeah. we, me and George are more brutal with each other on this film than anybody's ever been on Twitter. Kind of sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's well it, it that's that's what you that's why you get good products i think and, is that you can you can feel the weight of conflict and conversation in every frame of that film just because it's been settled on it's been thought through and you can tell that there's been conversations and those things hit you on a subconscious psychological level uh we yeah. we argue yeah and it was interesting we were we were struck early on when 
because a, a lot of films you have a clear main character and they have the arc and they drive the the story and that's simple but but this film is not simple in that it seems like the main character is split into three people there's there's Max Furiosa and Nux and Max is sort of the 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 catalyst i mean he's the most reluctant of all reluctant heroes and then Furiosa drives the story but Nux is the one who has the change so it's almost like the main character is split into three people, um, yeah. which which we we always found very you know complex and interesting, and and was was always a, sort of a defense for the film when everybody said when when people who were critical of the film said oh I didn't like it because you know it's a Mad Max film and Max wasn't the main character. Um, I think it took a little more uh, looking into you know the the story and the way it uh, the way it lays out. Um, to to come to that conclusion, but but we I mean we we found it horribly gratifying. Actually, Brendan, I have a question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. One of the things to um, remember, of course, is that once a film first comes out, there's that initial reaction, and then as the years go by and it settles down and becomes something. I mean, it's a no doubt. It's a modern classic. It's up there with, you know, the two Terminators by Cameron, mm-hmm. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, Alien. Um, you know, Empire Strikes Back. It's a great classic. It's as good as Road Warrior in its own way. Yeah. Uh, and you know, um, like to say, like with albums, say like the Beatles albums. Each one has a different weighting or sort of storyline, emotionally running through it. And some are slightly more successful than others, but they're all great and they're all slightly different. And the thing about Fury Road was, it's undoubtedly a great movie, a, a masterpiece, probably. And um, I've now got used to it as it is. Now I, I now accept it. That's how Max is in it. That's how Charlize Theron is in it. This how Nux is in it. Um, there's things that we had to take out because it was getting too busy with character stuff. Like um, Immortan Joe was a much more interesting character when we first started uh, talking about him because what we what we wanted to do to the audience is mess with their heads a bit with Immortan Joe. Imagine that Immortan Joe is running this program where he's diverting all of his resources into this little oasis at the top of the citadel where he's trying to get healthy girls so he can breed humans that are not cancerous and half-lives because he understands that the human race is dying out now and it's he's the last chance of humanity for the human race to go on and he's doing this stuff to keep the human race going. Now, doesn't that make it an interesting moral dilemma? Because because they turned him into just, he just wants to perpetuate his own crazy, corrupt stock. If he had actually been slightly, his, his intentions were noble, what are the girls doing when they're running away then? They're, yeah. killing, you know, they're, they're killing the world. Yeah. Well, exactly. So then there's a more interesting, so, so with a Morton Joe, you've then got a complexity in the character, you've then got the audience going, hang on a minute, what are these girls doing? And now you're conflicted about what they're doing. So, but it was too much. I now, when my, in the version I wrote, there were still those elements to Immortan Joe. Uh, by the time it had been, you know, gone through 15 years of its on, its off, of being, you know, refined by George, and then obviously another writer came on, Nico Lutheris, mm-hmm. and he obviously did his thing on it and stuff. So, you know, so Immortan Joe became more of a villain, and you were, I'm glad he, he Morton Joe got his, he deserved it. Mm-hmm. But before, he was a more interesting character, and um, that was something I missed, but then again, 
it's then getting too complicated. Suddenly you've got a fourth character with another arc to go through. You know, do you, mm-hmm. do you see what I mean? So, sure, absolutely. You're right. so, you know, so sometimes you've got to sacrifice something for to get to the nub of the of the film. I'm really intrigued by that, by that idea. And one thing that we've come across is the um, the linear, straightforward nature of the plot really works well with the complexity of the world building. And there's a right. juggle between those two things. That The more complex the world is, I think for a first viewer, for a Hollywood audience, you have to sort of draw back the complexity of the plot. You, you don't get to have both those things because people do get overwhelmed and they get confused by it. So the straightforward you know, car chase, whatever plot really works well in conjunction with the the remarkable complexity of the world building which i mean you can, you can tell it comes from comic book creators because uh the way the, the way the world is built feels like every panel of the of the movie is packed with with information and and jumping on the back of that how do you how did you feel about the uh using comic books uh after the movie came out to 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 elaborate a little bit into the the histories of those other characters yeah that was fun i mean um uh, I know there was a bit of a backlash when when the, um, uh, the older people praising Mad the film for its wonderful you know feminism suddenly mm-hmm. turned on everybody when uh, yeah. they did some scene I don't know what it was I heard there was a bit of a hoo ha mm-hmm. I couldn't be involved because I was in the middle of my own graphic novel and I couldn't just pull out of it to do the Mad Max thing but mm-hmm. uh, it would have been nice to do it but at the same time um, I, you know I, listen I was more than happy to have written design the initial drafts of the film and uh, oh, yeah. to i mean what was gonna, oh yeah listen i've got to, i've got to tell you one great geek moment right just see so you can imagine 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 this right mm-hmm. i mean to me george miller and mel gibson were like the scorsese de niro of australian films you know, right. those two together there's a kind of something about them. and those mad max films so after a year's worth of work we've and and then a second year's worth of work with all the storyboards. We have we're up in a big studio room, and it's got we've got the entire movie up on the walls in storyboard form. And uh, we've got everywhere giant blown up drawings of vehicles, necro boys or war boys, whatever they became called in the end, and all the rest of it. It's all there. And Mel Gibson walks in. Mm. His first time seeing the movie. George has phoned him up and said, "Mel, I've got a new Mad Max film. I want you to think about playing Mad Max." Well, I don't know if I so look. Come over and have a look, and I'll talk through the whole movie. So Mel arrives, comes in the room, you know, have a coffee, chit-chat about this. I got to ask him a couple of things that I wanted to ask him about. Yeah. He wants to have the rights to Patrick McGoon's The Prisoner and was going to play and do The Prisoner. Wow. And I wow. said, what happened to The Prisoner, Mel? Why didn't you make it? For Christ's sake? Yeah. Um, anyway, I got to ask him a bunch of stuff, you know, some things about uh, Braveheart. So anyway, it settles down, and Mel sits in one of those office chairs with the wheels on them, and just sits in the chair and George starts on storyboard frame one, open on the desert. Max is sitting, you know, next to the car and um, all the way through it. And for the next two hours, George talked Mel Gibson right through the entire Mad Max movie. And at the end of it, Mel goes, whoa. <laughs> and, and I was sitting in the room with Mark Sexton and Peter Pound. And George said to us, look, when Mel comes in, just kind of look busy as if you're drawing something. Whatever. <laughs> And uh, and I got so I, I got to see George Miller show Mel Gibson oh. McFury Road, and after it, you know, just chatting with Mel, and it was strange because nobody spoke about it afterwards. He just talked about other stuff again, you know. But you could see Mel's was churning over, and uh, and there were bits, you know, we'd notice. Wonder is 
and you hear Mel laugh out loud at something. You think, oh, great, excellent, he loves that bit. You know, bits that we put in here and there, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah, he had a couple of questions about, what about, you know, uh, you know, she slips. Is it clear that she slips on the, um, you know, when he shoots her in the leg, later on, she slips on the blood dripping out of her leg and gets killed by going under the truck, you know, the, the pregnant girl. Right, yes. Yeah, yeah the, the Furious on guys, yeah. Or the, just, the Splendid just, Listen, we had a scene which we took out because it would have been too gruesome. But actually, what happened is that they're in the they're in the truck in the war rig in you know in the back area, and she's hanging out of the uh, on the side of the door, and one of the stupid necro boys shoots her in the head. What? She, she falls into the truck, shot in the head, dead. And you go, oh my god, oh, you know, it's all screamed, you know, it's mad. And they say, but what about the baby? What about the baby? And Max says, we're going to have to cut it out. And so they do a cesarean operation in the back of the truck. Holy the shit. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, yeah. Was that, wait, was that in the pitch that you guys gave to Mel Gibson? Um, no, it wasn't okay. by then. Okay. No, okay. We, we sort of thought, you know, I think one of the, maybe one of the girls who worked at Kennedy Miller, you know, one of the office girls, was kind of going. That's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there were. There, you know, we'd have. It wasn't just a guy thing. You know, the women would. We'd have a lot of women walking around, and you know, the people they'd react to the stuff, and uh, you know, so you could gauge a lot of it where you've kind of crossed some kind of line where an audience isn't is not going to like what you just done. Yeah. But it was great cinema. I mean, that was a great. It, what a sequence that was. Sure. But, you know, in the end, you got to go. Mm, we could lose them here, you know. Yeah, yeah. this might be too far. Well, one of the things that we've we've touched on uh, before on the podcast is how little moments of humor keep it going. You know, even in a film as as ostensibly dark as this, you've got to have those little moments. And you yeah. you you've said that you share you know the, George's sick sense of humor. Um, were there any were there any funny bits that that just got cut that you're like ah, oh, but that, it was so good. But I understand that that we had to to lose that. Um. A minor quibble I have with the film is that it actually could have done with more humor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, actually some more laughs in it. Um, but, uh, well, well, um, I can't, nothing comes to mind. I mean, okay. I think I've, on Twitter, I posted up uh, the Larry, the, the original Larry and Barry idea where they were originally <laughs> glove puppets. Yeah. So that you would actually have shots of, if you did, if you did the correct, if you put the camera in the right place, it looked like these two glove puppets, this, this Necro Boy War, were driving the vehicle. And when you pull out a gun, it looked like a glove puppet was shooting at people. And Larry and Barry, it was just an idea that stayed for a while and then it faded out. And then again, how an idea migrates, they come back as his tumours. Yeah. I didn't, that was a surprise to me when he pointed at his tumours, because I don't think that was in the version I wrote. So that was fun, seeing, oh, look, there's Larry and Barry. They, still <laughs> they finally made it somehow made it in as a pair of tumours. George had, you know, was very passionate about this female road warrior character he had, who at the time was called the Praetorian, or the warrior woman, eventually called Furiosa. Um, we needed, what I said, like, we've got to have some really brand new tribes. So I tended to be more the guy who came up with the tribes and the vehicles. Before I went and worked on Fury Road, i just finished an animated TV series called Weirdos, which is all hot rod based. So I was very immersed and steeped in hot rod culture. And when I was coming on to Mad Max, I was thinking, why the fuck 
has have there never been hot rods in Mad Max movies. This is insane. Mm. Yeah. So the biggest that was the big thing I brought to the vehicles was the hot rod culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, the so the first thing we needed was we needed these kind of so they've just gone onto the Furiosa and then they're going to get attacked. And what we want to do is just do a really high energy balls out action sequence. And um, so the idea of the spiky vehicles with the buzz source came from me. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at, you know, I was looking at Australian uh, wildlife and there were these thorny-backed um, lizards. And I thought, that's got all the spikes. It'd stop you getting closer to the vehicles. Uh, made sense. It kind of felt Australian. And also it referenced the Cars That Ate Paris, the Absolutely. Peter Weir film, uh, which I'd seen on a, on a double bill with Mad Max 1. That was the first time I'd ever heard of Mad Max in England. They put it out with... Cars at Eight Paris and Mad Max 1 were seen together. Wow. Uh, so that was the first time I'd ever heard of Mad Max, was seeing those two films together. So that was a homage, if you like, to Peter Weir. And at the same time, you know, it was credible in its own right as a, an original type of tribe. And I had the idea of the buzzsaws. At the time, they were mounted above the vehicle, but it didn't make any sense because of gravity and weight. So they then, they then got mounted onto the vehicles, either on the roofs or on the underneath the vehicles. Um, so... That's how they came about. Uh, so the first, that whole buzzard stuff was, you know, generated. You know, obviously George would then go. George, look, George knows a good idea when he sees it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A good thing about George Miller is if you bat, if you bat him an idea in a creative tennis match, he'll bat you. He'll that idea will come back with an extra bit on it, and then I'll bat it back to him. You know, so that's how it, things would escalate and uh, get better and better very quickly. So we had the buzzards down. We thought right. They get through the buzzards, they're going to go into the canyon, it's going to be the negotiation. And so I happened to take a weekend off. It was an Australian holiday or something. I went to a place called Byron Bay, which is a kind of slightly hippie surf place. Mm-hmm. And there was a big, there was a pub with a big screen on, and they had all these track ride bikers uh, just diving up and down incredible gullies and stuff. And I thought, that's obviously a tribe. That's and great. they just in the canyon. Now, originally, the canyon was actually going to be an abandoned city, a vitrified city. You know how uh, heat can sometimes, you know, particularly with glass buildings, vitrify them. Yeah. So there was a sense of a melted, vitrified, ruined city. And But story-wise, we needed to be able to seal it, and it didn't kind of work. There were too many ways into it. So that got jettisoned. I did actually post drawings for this stuff up on Twitter. You'd have to scroll right back a couple of months ago to see them. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, so that's how that came up with. So I came back and said, listen, we've got to do the bike, biker. They're going to be like mountain goats, just jumping, you know, dive bombing and everything, you know. So that became the – so and each one would be very different to the one before. So that gave us a different dynamic in the action. So the action of the of the bikers is different to the action of the buzzards. The buzzards are like a, a, just a pack of jackals. They're going in there quick, disable the vehicle by buzzsawing their tyres and take them down so they can't move and then pick them apart how, you know, jackals would do it, mm. or uh, hyenas. The um, the uh, bikers were more like mountain goats, nimble, fast. They can go over you and drop stuff on you and, you know, hard to shoot because they're moving so quickly. So that was a different dynamic then. And then with the final um, uh, difference in tribe, you had the, uh, when you see the armada, you've got all the, the components of the armada. You've got the kind of you needed the hot rod culture for nucks and those young younger guys so they could show off and be machismo and spin the vehicles and do wheelies and all that stuff. Um, so that was there. And then you had um, 
you know, the, you know, the big kind of blundering kind of heavyweight vehicles, you know, because it's an armada, you can have the big vehicles surrounded by smaller vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, the original design for the Giga Horse was like, basically like a giant phallus. It was like a huge, long <laughs> battering ram uh, was the idea for it, you know, because it suited, the, it fitted the theme. Yeah. And then uh, somebody, I think from Weta, invented the double caddy thing, which I thought was fantastic, actually yeah. great improvement. It's beautiful. And um, really brilliant. Um, George, say, came up with the monster trucks, uh, and mm -hmm. then um, what else was there? There was I, uh, Peter Pound, I think, was very responsible for the um, Doof Warrior and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the Polecats as well. The Polecats, yeah, that was there was I was going to get to. And then the Polecats were kept back in the film. He didn't really. You, they mentioned it, but you don't see them yeah. until they're revealed. There's a beautiful shot where George reveals them, and they come in from the side, swinging in. And it's then beautiful. The shot, beautiful reveal, and. Uh, now that was when George George walked in one day and had a, he had this photograph of some guys on bendy poles and says, "Can you do anything with that?" <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting. And it really it took about three minutes. I just stuck them on a vehicle and said, "What about polecats boarding? You know, pirates and stuff." Straight away, yeah, got it. It was one of those. It just George, you know, that was a sort of joint. George had the idea because he wanted to be able to do. So if you, what I'm saying, if you plot through the different types of m motion in the action, from buzzards through to, you know, mountain goat bikers through to the armada itself and the different components inside it, you then leave to the end of the film the polecats, who are the kind of piece de resistance, mm -hmm. and they suddenly create a different dynamic completely in the action where your, your, your dynamic of action is now vertical axis rather than horizontal axis. It's one of the um, joys. Swaying. So, in a way, it's, it was a bit of a, of a recapitulation of Thunderdome, you know, inside the Thunderdome. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it was very unique. And so that was the bit that George kept in reserves. So we think, yeah, right, I think I've got the measure of this film. I've seen it now. And then these things come in, and suddenly you think, well, we're back in it. Because if you notice at that third chase, you're kind of a little bit, you know, when they're blowing the petrol down the tubes and they're trying to drag the vehicle at the back, it, it's a bit... Okay, I kind of been here now. Yeah, I think I know what this film is. And then once those polecats come in, suddenly you, the film revs right back up again, and you're into arguably one of the best sit sequences in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you've got the beautiful, that amazing crash of the truck. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, and then I, I felt it ramped up uh, once the polecats arrived. The the film cranked up a notch. I agree. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because there is a sense that when you have a visual uh, team who speaks the language of screenwriting and comics and visuals, that the, the brainstorming takes on a different timber. And it's neat to hear like, okay, we, we'll, we understand what we're looking for here. We need something that progresses the story, progresses the action, progresses the visual nature of the film. And here's something that satisfies all of that. Boom, boom, boom. And it's that sharing that common vocabulary across multiple disciplines it felt. It sounds like a very, very unique story room. No, but but also you got to remember one of the things I, I'm very, very aware of is um, when I get bored in a film. At what point in the film do I get bored? And most films I get bored in, like all those superhero films. I'm bored within five minutes. Right. I know. You know. You know. I, the, what's weird about these people that make superhero films they still don't get that CGI is boring thank you, you know, unless yep. you do something with it that's unique so um, uh, they you know and George's thing was as well let's do the cliche but we spin the cliche 
We're always going to, if we're going to do a cliche, we'll spin it. So it's a new take on the cliche. So uh, one of the things was, you know, we need something because, as I said, by the time you, just before the polecats come in, you get the feeling that I feel like I pretty much have got the measure of this movie and what's in it. I've seen this film now. I know what's going to happen. They're going to go through all this stuff, get back, okay. Mm -hmm. And then we confound that expectation by bringing in an element that you haven't seen before and get you back on the edge of your seat again. Smart. No, very, very smart. Well, here's a, here's a just a basic question, I think, that I'm very, very curious about. I think uh, as artists, a lot of times you invest time, effort, uh, creativity in a project, and then you wait to see if it manifests. So back in 97, you're, you're, you're devoting all of, I assume, most of your creative energy towards this project, really pushing, yeah. giving, giving all your best ideas. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then walk me through what happens just past that and how you're feeling about the world. Um, well, I left the movie and, and had a the audio is dropped. Years okay, you're in back. A room with George mm -hmm. looking at each other, and we were kind of like getting to the point where, listen, you know, maybe it's time. I wanted to get have a break, and my contract was up, and I said, let's just leave it alone for a while. And Mark and Pete were very, you know, in the swing of it. So, you know, the, the, all of it had been worked out. It was a question now of working the shots out, which is kind of. Uh, of the third act so it was the third act that had to be storyboarded that's all everything was laid down on visuals you got to remember no no production designer had joined the film yet or anything I was originally offered the production design job mm -hmm. but I turned it down uh, and I'll tell you why because I didn't want to really go to South Africa and organise crews of mechanics and import steel plates from right. Russia and you know all that shit that production <laughs> designers have to do quite frankly doesn't interest me in the slightest mm -hmm. so I reluctantly decided not to do it, and uh, a few years later, a guy called Colin Gibson came in, and he, you know, and he was very fortunate that he inherited a film that was largely designed already. Then he came in and made sure that it got built properly and brought his own ideas in and whatever, you know. So he did his thing, but you know, the whole thing was laid out, and in design and story and characters you know, in the first year and refined by the end of the second year. That's when I left and I came back and I rejoined, but I had I went to a different studio in George's uh, big studio place he has in uh, Sydney and started on another movie that I'd created that George co-wrote with me. It's a brand new film that has, nobody knows about and has never been released and is still, I'm hoping it's not going to take as long as... Uh, uh, Fury, Fury. Is, is this is this uh, Fur Brigade or is this something totally different? Yeah, oh yeah. Well, George has mentioned it a couple of times, so I don't really talk about it much. That that's fine. Just yes, it is that one, and it's something really. It's a terrific film, really fantastic. And uh, uh, anyway, we'll see. I, I, I got feed. It, it, to me, it's too good not to get made, and mm -hmm. it's just a question of uh, you know right time. You know, obviously, George. Last time I spoke to George, he was very swept up in the Oscar campaign for Mad Max and everything. Sure. And uh, I just, you know, I just thought, let him, that Mad Max has to run its course. I, I, I thought it was a real shame he didn't get the Oscar for Best Direction. Agreed. Agreed. I think Fury Road was the better movie, quite frankly. But mm -hmm. uh, um, anyway, we'll see how it goes. Um, and uh, after, so after that, I, um, uh, as I say, I did actually come back and do another movie. And um, uh, I think shortly after that, I, I went to LA for a while and, uh, I had written a couple of films myself, tried to get them up, and that was quite difficult. Didn't happen. And um, yet, 
I got well, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because Mad Max Fury Road hadn't come out and won all the Oscars and all the rest of it, so right. it's easier now to get meetings when you've got that under your belt rather than I've written this Mad Max film that probably won't get made. Right, right, sure. <laughs> right. I mean, was that in the back of your head, uh, Brendan, uh, the whole time? So say like 2001 to 2008, are you just thinking, wow, I, I made something really, really cool that no one may, may ever see? Was that just in the back of your head sort of bothering yeah, you? or? Also, it was um, the overall period was about four years of being involved with George Miller and going to Australia. On and off, it was four years. And so all my life, that's four years of my life, where with Fur Brigade and with Mad Max Fury Road, I had nothing to show for it, and I couldn't talk about it. God. So. I mean, that sounds excruciating. <laughs> and you know it's cool. Like, you know it's good, smart work that you just yeah. can't, you can't talk about, can't share, and no one may ever see. Because there's certainly stretches of years there where you must have thought, well, this isn't getting made, it's been too long, forget it. Yeah, well, when Mel Gibson sort of fell out of it and all the rest of it, he just thought, oh, well, we've lost Mel, wow. Because you've got to remember, I... I wrote the fourth installment of the Mel Gibson Mad Maxes. That's what it was to me. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, Mel had agreed to do it and all the rest of it. And it was, I mean, I was really, I mean, I was, uh, although George says I don't, I'd never wanted to make Unforgiven, you know, I think <laughs> to me, I thought, I was saying, George, don't you think it's interesting that you've got the same character when he was a young guy in Mad Max 1? Now you'll have him getting old now in Fury Road. And who knows, you might even do another one in 15 years' time. And he's really fucking old. Yeah, right. I think it's cool. <laughs> the, the, the Dark Knight of um, of, of uh, Mad Max films. All right. Yeah, but you know, and uh, those films can work. They can be great. But uh, you know, that's fair enough. George, in the end, to his credit, was uh, decided to you know reinvent the thing. And and um, you know, there was a time when Heath Ledger was seriously going to play it, and uh, uh, then he obviously he died. And uh, you know, said, Christ, what will this film ever? You right. Know? And um, and obviously, Tom Hardy was kind of pretty much, if you think about it, who else could have played him but Tom yeah. Hardy? Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. Uh, Brendan, do you think, so let's say Mad Max gets greenlit in 97, Mel Gibson does it, the world goes straight through, it's out by 2000, 2001. Do you think your career would have been different in the early 2000s in terms of screenwriting opportunities or projects you wish you would have done? Or, or have you been sort of doing the thing that you would have done anyway? Um... Well, I think, yeah, it would obviously would have been different. My Hollywood experience would have been different. Um, but um, I'm saying it would have been different, not necessarily better. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things, when I was in, after a few years in Hollywood, and, uh, you know, it's a very difficult place, uh, you know, when you're, you know, trying to get movies made. And, you know, everybody knows this, you know, what it's like over there. Yeah, um, you know, fan, fans think it's all glamour and showbiz and snapping paparazzi, but the reality is a very different thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, uh, but out of the blue, I got a phone call from DC Comics saying there was a guy, an editor there, who was a big fan of my stuff. And he said, Brenda, I don't know if you're interested in doing any more comics or anything, but we've got this uh, comic called Solo, which is uh, our prestige uh, publication where we're highlighting all the top artists in comics and we're giving them their own book to do anything they wanted. What? And we're doing what? 12 of them. And we want you to be the last one because it's only running to 12. We've got all these top guys, Darwin Cook and, you know, mm. all sorts of people. And uh, we want you to end it because we just want to go out. As it's the last one, it could be as weird as you like. <laughs> I said, sure, I, didn't, I don't know that I'm as well known as any of these guys. I'm a bit of a cult kind of character, really. And... Uh, um, 
he said, no, I really, listen, man, I've loved your stuff ever since, you know, back back in the day. And, you know, what's been great is a lot of young kids who would read my stuff, smoking heaps of dope and reading all this weird, <laughs> you know, surrealist shit that I used to put out when I was young. They were much younger and really digging it. So when they all started to rise up into the industry and become editors and stuff, suddenly, the, you know, this guy got in touch with me and said, I'd love for you to do it. And so I said, yeah, okay. So I did this solo. Came out, I was really happy. I just did a, a whacked out, just did whatever I wanted, took them at their word. They said you can use any of our characters because, you know, it's DC Comics. So I did a little Batman story and I, did, I used the Flash and whatever I wanted to do, but, but my versions of them. Mm-hmm. And that was great fun. And then Marvel saw it and said, do you want to do, who, do you want to do something for us? I said, what's Doctor Strange doing? Because he was my favourite character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy was the editor editing the Spider-Man line. He said, well, if you stick Spider-Man in it, I'll green light it. <laughs> so I said, okay. I, I, one of my favourite ever comics is a comic where Steve Ditko did Spider-Man and Doctor Strange together in one story. Yeah. And yep. um, so I just used that as the model and did a, a long-form story called Fever. Mm-hmm. And uh, just from then on, you know, and then somebody else calls up, do you want to do Dark Horse? I've started to form a relationship with them as uh, I do my own work again, my indie stuff. And so I did The Zorcer of Zilk for mm-hmm. the British publisher, 2000 AD. Mm-hmm. So it's been quite weird. I've been going around all the places I used to work with in the first, in the 80s comics boom, doing new stuff for them. And uh, Dark Horse was my latest uh, thing out was uh, Dream Gang. A yeah. kind of Inception meets Yellow Submarine is the best way of saying it. <laughs> Great pitch. Yeah, yeah. so with Dream Gang, um, I'm hoping to... Uh, I'd like to pitch it as a CGI TV series, you know, an intelligent sci-fi TV series. Along the line, you know, something probably not as mature as Black Mirror, but for the Doctor Who um, Star Trek audience, you know, intelligent yeah. sci-fi, but broad audience. Um, so that's what I'd like to do with Dream Gang. So in the next trip I do to um, Hollywood, we'll probably, you know, we'll, I'll be pitching some stuff. I mean, I've tried, I have tried a few things with uh, I uh, myself and Mark Miller. You probably know him from yeah. Kickass. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, me and Mark cooked up a very interesting animated uh, feature film as well, which uh, you know Mark wrote a, um, a treatment for, and I've designed, and you know, I might try and pitching that as well you know so we'll see how it goes you know as an artist and creator i'm as happy doing comic books as i am doing feature films i don't yeah. personally see that a, you know obviously a great feature film is probably at the end greater than a great comic book as a, as a as a force and as a piece of work just in a way as a great symphony probably is better than a great pop song but in the end in the end the high the high and low art distinctions don't bother me uh, and um i'm very happy there's, there's something very nice about writing, drawing, coloring, producing your own graphic novel. It's very satisfying. Sure. And actually getting it out and made rather than manage the time. Most of the projects I've worked on in film and TV never got made. And I've done tons of development work and mm. beautiful stuff, which I have been posting on my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be, I'll, when I get around to digitizing the next batch, I'll uh, post some more up. But I've pretty much done the Mad Max stuff now. So if, if listeners are interested, you're just going to have to scroll back down through the Twitter feed and um, you'll see loads of Mad Max goodies. I'm sure they'll be, I'm sure they'll be happy to. You've, you've answered so many of our questions. You've told so many great stories and you've, you've really, uh, you know, let some light in on some stuff that we were fascinated about. Um, I, I have no follow-up questions other than really thanking you for taking the time today. No, you're welcome. 
it's nice to talk to people that really get the movie and you know it in detail because so I can actually go into detail too and shed a little bit of light on the the very beginnings of what was once a, a couple of ideas which became a story and then became characters vehicles and the wonderful masterpiece that George Miller produced and uh, very proud of it well, well, it should be. And yeah. I also, I'm so happy that this movie has introduced people to your comic work, people that weren't necessarily familiar with it, because you're making great contributions there. Um, and they're really, really, really cool to be able to spread your wings and do a, a million different things and, and uh, be creative in multiple industries. So I hope that keeps on keeping on for you, man. Thank you very much, guys, and appreciate it. Certainly, and and I will be the the first. But I think I speak on behalf of uh, the the all, all our fans and um, and definitely us too that uh, you turned that job down at Pixar. <laughs> hey man, I'm kicking myself now. Don't don't. All right, man. Um, Thanks so much for your time, Brendan. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And this has been Brendan McCarthy. And you are awaited. <laughs>